It's easy to come uh, on Sunday morning because we do this all the time. Uh, it's easy to come and really have not much for expectation. It's just, it's what we do. We just kind of came because it's what we do. Um, but, but I want to just pray before we even get going this morning, asking that God would, would do something. Is that what you want? Do you want God to do something in you and us together this morning? Let's pray uh, to that end. God, words are powerful. Um, it's, my words might carry a little bit of weight this morning, but ultimately, God, we know it's, it's you that are powerful that you are the one who has the great name. In you, the dead are raised to life. The sick are healed. The lost are sought out and saved. And God, would you cause some of your work, some of your purposes to be made known in this place today? We know that ultimately the purpose of all of this is that we might worship. And so I pray that this preaching this morning would lead to worship. Pray that this preaching might lead to salvation even for some. God, I pray that Jesus, above all, would be high and lifted up as we gather together under His Word this morning. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, we, uh, exciting times, like I said, in the life of the church. We're starting our life groups this week now and uh, very pleased uh, how many of you have made this commitment for the next six weeks to be involved in one of our life groups. It's not too late if you're still interested. They're starting this week. You're interested, come and let me know uh, and we can find a group to get you into. We have 69 adults in our church committed to this. And so that's a great commitment. A, a number of people, we're going to be gathering together uh, on a weekly basis over the next six weeks. Uh, and our goal is to grow in our knowledge of and love for one another as we together grow in our knowledge of and love for Jesus. That's what we want to do, that that growth we know takes place as we meet together. And so that's what's going to happen. We're going to have times during that of just fellowship and prayer, but then also some time where we're going to dig into Scripture. Uh, and it's going to be based on the sermon from the previous week. And so that's from today. And so if you're in one of those life groups on your way out, it might be helpful for you to grab, it would be helpful for you to grab a participant guide. They're going to be on a music stand in the entryway just as you walk out this morning. If you're a couple, grab one for each of you. Uh, but those guides, maybe if you even spent a little time looking over it 15-20 minutes before you went to your life group, that might be helpful for you to prepare so that as you gather together, um, you're just kind of ready for the discussion and, and hopefully the growth that will take place in those life groups. So those begin this week. Uh, interested in getting involved in one and you're not in one yet, come and talk to me before the day's over and we'll, we'll see what we can do to get you into one. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We took a break over the summer, but from January through May, we went chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Mark and got through four chapters. Uh, and now we're going to pick that up at the beginning of chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. The goal of this series in Mark has been threefold, that, that as we get into the Gospel of Mark, which it says in Mark 1, verse 1, that this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This book is about Jesus, and so goal number one in this series is that we together would know Jesus' true identity. That we as a church body would know Jesus' true identity, and that we would also trust in His complete authority. 
Mark talks a lot about the authority of Jesus, and our hope is that we would, and God's hope is that we would trust in His complete authority, and then that we would make the decision that the disciples made to follow Him immediately. That's the goal of this series. We ended, if, if you, just to kind of take us back, we ended at the end of chapter 4. You remember that Jesus and His disciples had gotten in a boat to cross to the other side of the sea, and He had experienced fishermen that had spent their lives on the sea, remember? But a storm came up when they were in the middle of the sea that frightened these experienced fishermen to the point of death. It was called a great storm. This is at the end of chapter 4. You remember that great storm that came up. But the great Jesus was taking a nap in the midst of it. And his disciples came with great fear, waking him up. And so Jesus simply spoke words to the storm. And his words carried authority, causing the storm to turn from a great storm into a great calm. And that elicited great fear amongst the disciples. And they asked the question, Who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They looked at Jesus and saw a glimpse of His identity, of His power, and they were in awe and even fear. And now today, in chapter 5, they're getting to the other side of the sea. They're reaching their destination. And we read about it in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. As I read God's Word, if you're able to, let's stand. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. It'll be on the screen as well. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned in the sea. Now the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw this demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus, to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away 
And he began to proclaim in the, in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You can be seated. There's four points on the back of your bulletin that you'll see. might want to take notes. We're going to go over the first three relatively quickly and spend most of our time on the last point. But the first point is coming right out of verse 1 and out of the rest of Scripture as well. And that is this, that we know that Jesus is on a mission. We know this about Jesus, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, through whom and for whom all things were made. He has existed eternally. But we also know that God, at a particular time in history, sent the Son to come to earth, to take on human flesh, to be born of a virgin into the world at a certain time in a certain place. And why was it that God had sent Jesus out? It's because God was on a mission. He had been on a mission from the beginning. And God's mission is that He might be glorified. That people from every tongue and tribe and nation might worship Him. That was God's mission. And He sent Jesus to come to rescue His people that His mission might be fulfilled. That, that God might be worshipped in all nations. God primarily in the Old Testament had worked through the people of Israel. But even there where we see that His intention was that through Him, through, through Israel, through the nation of Israel, that all nations on earth might come to know and worship God. We can read about that in Romans 15. really talks about that a lot. Uh, Romans 15, you could write down verses 8 through 13. I'm just going to read verse 12 to you. Romans chapter 15, verse 12, he's actually quoting Isaiah. He says, and again, Isaiah says, this is 700 years before Jesus, a prophecy about Jesus, the root of Jesse... It's Jesus, will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Jesus came on a mission, sent from the Father as a missionary of sorts to our world, that the world might worship him. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was his mission. That's why Jesus came, right? And Luke 19.10 says this, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus was sent to earth on a mission that the lost, the desperately lost even, might come to know him. We've seen that mission advanced many ways so far in Mark. But now, but most of what's happened in Mark so far has happened almost solely amongst Jewish people. But now Jesus got in the boat and he's crossing the sea. And he is on a mission to seek and save the lost. And we're going to find out today he's really just seeking after one man. So he put the disciples in the boat, having them endure a storm that scared them to death, to seek and to save one desperately lost man. The disciples were probably, we don't hear this, But we assume the disciples were a little bit skeptical of joining Jesus on this mission. They're looking at their people and saying, God, there's a lot of work to do right here. Do we really need to be crossing the entire sea to go reach one man and a Gentile at that? Because the Jewish people would have looked at Gentiles and said, unclean. 
The disciples are in the boat with Jesus, on mission with Jesus, to reach this one man. Who is this one man? Look at verses 2 through 5. Verses 2 through 5 paint the picture of this man, that he was quite desperate. Some have said one of the most miserable men in all of Scripture. And if you look at it, that sounds pretty accurate. Doesn't this guy look absolutely miserable? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says that when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, so imagine this, I mean, they're just getting the boat pulled up on shore. Disciples are already skeptical of being on Gentile territory. They probably see this herd of pigs feeding on the hillside, and Jewish people never would have come into contact with dirty animals like pigs. They saw those as unclean, Gentiles as unclean. First thing they see, they're probably thinking, yep, this is what I thought. First thing they see is this man coming down the hill, probably running down the hill towards them, maybe still blood from him cutting himself with stones. Probably naked, because later we find out that they're surprised that he's clothed. So this naked, screaming, howling Gentile, probably all bloodied, coming, running down the hill to them, and they're thinking, oh my, what did we get ourselves into? But Jesus is not surprised. This man is desperately lost. Maybe some would even say hopelessly lost, because look what had happened so far. They had, he was living among the tombs. Even the people that he lived with could not stand living by him. So he had come, he had retreated to live by the shore, in the mountains, among the tombs. Surrounded by dead bodies and dead bones. That was his company. Living in isolation from the rest of humanity. No one could bind him anymore. They had tried. They had put chains and shackles on him, and because of the demon's power within him, he would break those shackles, break those chains. This man is desperately lost, and I don't think he wants to be where he is. Look at verse 5. Night and day among the tombs. Okay, Not even doing a lot of sleeping. Night and day among the tombs. And on the mountains, he was always crying out. And that word is not like he was, you know, crying out in prayer. Not like saying some nice, calm words. That word is more like the word for like howling. Like an animal does. This man was crazy. Howling out and cutting himself, it says, with stones. So we get a picture of a very, very desperate man. One that some would look at and say, that seems hopelessly lost. But then... We're going to get a glimpse of some great power in verses 6 through 13. Verses 6 through 13, we see two main powers, both extremely powerful. First, I want us to look at the power of the demons. The power of the demons. Here's a little bit of that power. Verse, uh, verse 9. Jesus had asked the demons, what is your name? And they replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion was a Roman military word used to describe approximately 6,000 troops. The demon said, that's me. We're, we're, we're Legion. We living inside this man, possessing this man. He's as desperate as he is because of us. And, and these, these demons, multiple demons living inside one man, have great power. Such great power that they would 
According to verse 13, after Jesus gives them permission, the unclean spirits come out and enter into pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. These demons inside this man are powerful enough that when they are sent out into pigs, a huge herd of 2,000 pigs, they cause pigs to commit suicide. 2,000 of them. Very, very powerful demons. They had caused all the desperation that is described, that this man could break chains. Nobody could subdue him because of the powers of the demons living within him. One danger that we have in our culture especially is we can kind of think like this is all like old archaic kind of stuff. That this is either stuff for history or this is stuff for maybe people in some other country but not here. But that's simply not true and that's one of Satan's greatest deceptions and tricks. That he would get us to believe that this kind of spiritual warfare existed in the past or exists somewhere else but does not exist here. And when we believe that lie from Satan, then he's free to operate without our opposition because we're not even praying. We're not even putting on the armor because we just think, I think that's just all kind of old stuff. It doesn't really happen like that anymore. The other trick, though, of Satan, which in, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, he says, both, that Satan is equally pleased by both of these errors. The other error that a lot of us have is that we can look at this stuff and we can become obsessed with it and become very fearful and even paralyzed by the great power that the spiritual forces of evil have in this world. But here's the truth. Is Satan real? Yes. Are there evil forces at work within the spiritual realm that really affects real life here and now on this earth? Yes. Should this cause us to pray fervently and put on the full armor of God? Yes. Should this cause us, though, to have fear and be consumed by it and be paralyzed by it? And the answer is no. And you know why? Because of the other great power that we see at work in verses 6 through 13. Let's look at that. The other great power we see at work in verses 6 through 13 is the power of Jesus. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. This man, crazed and possessed by demons, all he can do when he sees Jesus, recognizing immediately his power, even knowing his identity, which you see in verse 7. They're crying out to him with his name, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, but then they're begging Jesus. These, these demons, as powerful as they are, are nothing before the power of Jesus. So they come and they fall on their face before him and say, do not torment me. They're begging Jesus, don't torment me. They know that Jesus has greater power than they do. Don't torment me, they cry. And then... Later, they beg him earnestly. This is verse 10. They beg him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Anything the demons are doing, Jesus is giving them permission to do. Verse 13, he gives them permission to go into the pigs. They knew. In verse 8, when Jesus said in verse 8, for he was saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit, that was it. They were done. Demons didn't have a chance. As powerful as they were, they didn't have a chance to stand up against the great power of Jesus. When Jesus says, do this, they must do this. They must leave this man. 
because Jesus' power is much, much greater than the great power of demons. So, we've seen Jesus' power all throughout the Gospel of Mark. We just saw it at the end of chapter 4 as Jesus demonstrated his power over the storm, right? Jesus has power over nature, and now here we see Jesus having power over even darkness and evil and Satan himself. We see that here in this story. So people observe this. People observe this. Look at verses 14 to 16. You can't help but notice what had happened here. It was just one man, but there were some herdsmen out there with their pigs, who are now obviously, by the way, uh, poor. (laughs) They used to be relatively rich to have a herd of 2,000 pigs. Very rich, actually. Now they got nothing. Okay, Pig farmer without pigs is not much of a farmer. And they are amazed at what they just saw. And so, verse 14, the herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. Okay, So they go spread it. People are like, what? That guy? That guy that we've been warning our kids about for years? That guy that we tried to lock up that one time, and he just busted it open? That guy who's wreaked havoc on our city? What, him? Really? Who's this guy that did this? And 2,000 pigs really ran off the side of the cliff and drowned it, really. And so everybody comes to see. Jesus' power was obvious to all. Verse 15, And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion. And listen to this. What a transformation. This man who moments before had been howling, cutting himself with stones, living among dead bones. Now he is sitting there clothed and in his right mind and the people were afraid this is where we start to see the people's response to jesus power when we see jesus powerfully at work doing what only jesus can do we must respond in some way and the initial response of these people as it was for the disciples immediately after he calmed the storm was a response of fear they were afraid When they saw the power of Jesus, they were in awe and they were afraid. Verse 16 says, And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. What had happened was this radical transformation. What a great picture of salvation in Christ. That this man, desperately lost, now sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Great picture of salvation. So this guy is sitting here, and how is it that they respond? Look at verse 17. We're going to see two responses in these last verses. Two possible responses, and I want us to see, look at our lives and say, which response am I making? Two possible responses we see. Verse 17 says this, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Jesus had come, taken on human flesh, taken his disciples on a journey across the sea to reach this one desperately lost man. And as he does this and they see his power, the Gerasenes looked at this and said, Go home, Jesus. Rejected him. They trembled at his power. They, they didn't understand it. They were probably also very practically afraid of the, what it would cost them if he stuck around. He'd only been there for a few hours and they lost 2,000 pigs. What happens if he hangs out longer? Right? 
They probably didn't even care if this guy got healed. They had already cast him away. He was living among the graves, right? Big deal if he gets healed. All Jesus did was come and he healed one crazy man and killed 2,000 pigs. So they asked him to leave. That's their response. And I wonder if there might be some in here this morning that are responding in the same way. Maybe you are resisting the lordship of Jesus in your life today. You're okay, maybe, with Jesus being a part of your life. With kind of dabbling and getting what people call a little religion. Right? Like, I'm okay with this. I'm kind of into this church thing. This is okay. But when it comes to going all in for Jesus, to allowing Him to take the throne of your life, you're a little skeptical. You're wondering what it might cost you. Might it cost you some friends? Some things that you really enjoy doing right now? Might it cost you some business, some money, some pride to swallow it and say, I am a sinner. I'm no better off than this guy. And I come before Jesus humbly saying, I need Him. Is that you? That's a dangerous place to be because you're rejecting the only one who can save you. He is God and there is no other. And so my plea to you today would be that you would stop being your own God and Master and submit yourself to Jesus as your Lord and Master. There's others of you, though, that might reject Jesus because you're just not sure that you're worthy. You might feel like, as you look at this man, you kind of feel like, that's me. I've been rejected by a bunch of people. I'm off on my own. Why would Jesus cross the sea for me? I'm a a Gentile. Listen, Listen to all the things that this guy had against him. He was a Gentile. Jews didn't associate with Gentiles. He was living by graves. Jews would become unclean if they went around graves, around dead bodies. That's where this guy's living. This guy was living among Gentiles and he was living among pigs. All things that that Jewish people would have stayed away from. But Jesus comes to this man. He approaches this man. This man is not too far gone. This man is not too dirty. This man is not too unclean for our Jesus. He approaches him. And Jesus, no matter what you have experienced in your life, maybe you've been living with secret sin for a very long time and you think, Jesus can't come and get me now. You don't know. You don't know where I've been. Maybe you've been giving Satan some sort of foothold in your life and you feel like things are spinning out of control and it's taking everything you've got to just hold it all together. Maybe you feel dirty and sinful and maybe you feel ashamed because of some abuse that you've taken in the past. Maybe you battle mental illness and it makes you feel unworthy to be understood and loved and acknowledged by others. All sorts of things that can cause us to say, I just, I can't, I can't accept the power and mercy and grace of Jesus. And we say, Jesus, go away. That's what one group did. But I hope that we all have a different response. And that's the response of this man. Look at verses 18 through 20. I want to be like this man who realizes how desperate he is. And he willingly accepts Jesus' rescue and he responds with a desire to be with Jesus. To be with him and be his obedient disciple. Look at verse 18. 
as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. That's what a disciple of Jesus wants. Once Jesus comes to rescue you, to to save you from your sin, a disciple of Jesus says, I want to be with him. That's what this guy wants. That's what he longs for. But Jesus has a mission, right? He and his disciples are going back to Jewish territory. And he knows that this guy is probably not going to be a very good missionary to Jewish people. That's not going to go so well. But he knows that this guy could be a really good missionary to other Gentiles. And so, look at verse 19. And he did not permit him to come with them, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You remember every other time? Remember in Mark, when Jesus has done something miraculous, what's his word? When he's done with it, what does he tell people? Don't say anything, right? This is a secret. Why this guy, though? Why is he telling this guy, actually go tell people? Probably because of his geographic location. Jesus' ministry among the Jewish people would have been hindered because their understanding of who he was as the Messiah was not yet complete. And so if the Jewish people would have had this understanding right up front and heard of these things, Jesus' ministry would have been hindered. But not so with the Gentiles. And so Jesus says to this guy, you go for it. you got the green light. Go find your friends and your family, your neighbors, and you tell them what God, Jesus again claiming to be God, tell them what the Lord God has done for you. Sends him off as a missionary. Is this crazy or what? Think about this. This man, just moments ago, seemed hopelessly lost. One of the most miserable men on the entire planet. And now, moments later, Jesus has chosen him as the first Gentile missionary to Gentiles. What? This is incredible. And what does this guy do? He says, Jesus, uh, remember where I was just a few hours ago? Give me me something. Can I have have the Bible? Can can, Can I have at least the Old Testament? You give me that? Can you give me like one of your disciples? Can I have a partner? You send them out two by two. What about me? I'm just a, I'm just a crazy guy who just got healed. You, you want me? I'm not going to do this, Jesus. No, look at verse 20. And he went away. And he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which means the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. He goes away obedient. And Jesus blesses him. Listen, some of you don't feel very prepared to be a missionary. You feel like that guy in the video at the beginning, kind of all tongue-tied. You, you want to say something to people about Jesus or at least invite him to church, you end up talking about goulash instead, right? That, that you're like, uh, no, well, I, I mean, I've only been in the, and I've, just, I've just been, in, yep, you know? And we just kind of feel like, I, I don't know, I don't know what I'd say. I don't know what I'd do. I'm unprepared. Maybe it's because of your past. Because you, you're, you're ashamed of some stuff in your past, what God has rescued you out of, you say, there's no way that God could call me and use me now because of who I once was. If you think you got that excuse, read Mark 5, 1 through 20. You don't have that excuse. That one's not available to you. This man may be one of the most miserable men in all of history. This man who seemed hopelessly lost is called by God to be a missionary with about zero training. You hesitate to serve in ministry in some way, resisting God's call because of the shame of who you once were. Reject that and obey God. Jesus was on a mission, and He sends us out on a mission. Jesus may, like He did with His disciples, take us to uncomfortable 
and scary places. For some of you, that might be your own family. Some of you, that might be the people that you work with. Some of you, that might be the people you go to school with. But he puts us in uncomfortable places because he's on a mission to seek and save those who are desperately lost. And he may send you out when you feel unprepared. But he's sending you. Jesus came on a mission and he sends us on a mission. John chapter 20 verse 21 says this. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I'm a missionary, you're a missionary, Jesus says. The Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You know somebody who seems too far gone? We have the green light. And we ought to be proclaiming the gospel to all people, even those who seem hopelessly lost. You know, as I first read this passage and was thinking about preaching it, we as elders studied it together. kind of thought, man, how do we even relate to this guy? I mean, none of us seem that bad. I mean, even if you've got hard stuff going on, we're not to the point of this, man. We're not that desperate, are we? Then I was led this week to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to close there. Why don't you turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Ephesians chapter 2. Maybe this story was hard for you to relate to. You haven't seen anyone in that desperate of a place. Maybe you feel like you're not in that desperate of a place. But as we wrap up this morning, I just want to let you know personally, I've come to find that I'm much more like this man than I originally thought I was. This man was living in the graves among the dead. Pretty much as good as dead. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Speaking about us, this is Paul's letter to the church. This is for those who were saved. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's me. That's you. That's any of us prior to faith in Christ. We're no better off than this man. In fact, we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. Not just living among the dead, ourselves dead. That's us. That sounds pretty desperate. Dead is pretty desperate. No hope in ourselves of winning the favor of God by us doing anything. Spiritually dead. It's a desperate situation that we were in. Verse 2, here's what that looked like in our lives in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That's what we did. Before Christ, all of us just did what everybody else was doing. That's what we did. Followed the course of this world. So we didn't, we didn't seem this evil. We didn't seem as lost and as far gone as this guy because we were just doing what everybody else was doing. We didn't look that bad. But here's who we were also following. Look at this guy saying, oh, he's possessed by demons. That's crazy. I've never experienced anything like that. But here's who, where we are before Christ. Following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Prior to us being saved by God's grace through our faith in Christ, we were influenced significantly not just by the world, but also by Satan. By the evil powers at work within the world. 
We were influenced by that prior to Christ. We were also influenced by the world. And then, verse 3, we were also influenced, it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Okay? That's also where we were. We weren't just influenced by the world and by Satan. We were influenced by our own deceitful, sinful hearts. We just did what we wanted to do, carried about by the passions of our flesh, doing what our mind and our body said, I want to do that. We did it. That's where we were spiritually. You don't think this sounds desperate yet? Spiritually dead people being influenced by Satan and evil spirits being influenced by the world and being influenced by our own sinful, deceitful hearts? You know where that ends? You know where that that, that leads us? The rest of verse 3 says it. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were children of wrath. We were deserving of the wrath of God Almighty, of His punishment because of where we were. This is, this is bad news, people. This is, this is where I think, honestly, probably some of you this morning are still here. But the good news comes with one of the most glorious conjunctions in all of Scripture, and that is the word but at the beginning of verse 4. Verse 4 says, but God. But God. But God, being rich in mercy. You, you are desperately lost and dead in your sin. More hopeless even than this man in Mark chapter 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the gospel. This is the good news. That that when I was dead in my sin, just as desperate as that demon-possessed man, that Jesus got off of His throne and got into a boat and crossed the sea to save a desperately lost, sick, and depraved Gentile like me to call me to Himself and to call me out to be on mission for Him. That's good news. And I fear that some of you have been around for a long time and have not yet really gripped that and held on to that. And my hope is that before you even leave this morning, or maybe if you don't have guts, maybe you'll call me sometime this week, but that you'll come and talk to me and say, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I have turned away from my sin and turned away from being a child of wrath and trusted instead in Jesus. That I've put my faith in Him. I don't want us to be a church. I don't want you to be a people that responds like they did in verse 17. That sees the power of Jesus and says, I'm not sure that I'm ready for that. I want us to be a people that recognize how desperately lost we are, that we might accept our lostness and accept and receive Jesus as the rescuer and savior and the one who is eternally worthy of our worship and our obedience.